Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jennifer Briney. She is the host of the Congressional Dish Podcast, which is wildly popular and chronicles all the activities of the United States Congress. It's a wonderfully informative and fun show, and we had a great time talking about Corona and Congress and the political landscape today. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you, Jen. Jen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. It's uh, been a long time since we talked, and I was thinking about you. I, I saw something. I think I was like looking at Ringer's site, and you were featured on their site. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to talk to Jen about her podcast, the Congressional Dish, and what she's thinking in Corona. Because this is an interesting time, right? Where we are spending all this money in the government, right? And we are spending more money than we've spent ever in, in, in that I can recall. <laughs> and and there's and Congress isn't in, really in session, right? I mean, this is so what is this like covering the congressional dish beat? You know, you have one of the, you have one of the best political shows. And my listeners don't know, like, I mean, you just really watch C-SPAN and read the record. And read, so what's it been like covering Congress as you do in a granular way when there's not really a Congress functionally made it? <laughs> well, that's been really, really frustrating for me, not so much as a podcast host, more as just an American to just see. Because first of all, for people who haven't been paying attention, like, first of all, I get it. Because um, <laughs> all the news from Congress is bad lately. But essentially, they we had this whole coronavirus thing start. And very, very quickly, they passed three laws to deal with it. But they were done so quickly and they none of these laws went through the proper process. Usually they're supposed to be carefully crafted in a committee and then they get voted on in the House and then in the Senate there's usually debates and then they go to the president's desk. It's a whole process. That's not what happened with these. And so most people are familiar with the CARES Act, which appropriated trillions of dollars to the response and it was very poorly crafted. So we have, we're seeing so many problems like small businesses can't get access to the small business money. And it's really not helping a lot of just regular Americans deal with the fact that a lot of us can't work. And yet Wall Street's doing just fine. And so and, and, and big corporations, right, we're getting access to the money because I mean, Mm-hmm. They're the people that have the best lawyers and the best accountants, and so and and again, there it wasn't illegal for them. No, no admirably, no, some of them specifically like, legal. That's what's so frustrating. Um, and, and even and some like Shake Shack gave the money back admirably. I mean, like kind of were shamed into doing the right thing. But but this is the problem, right? That that this in an effort to shovel the money out the door, which we should be again trying to provide relief, right? But 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 without the proper regulations, I mean, this thing was. There were loopholes you could drive a truck through, right? Yeah. I mean, with the small business one, it's such a great example because when it comes to big businesses, there's just a fire hose of money is how I res- I phrased it in my episode about the CARES Act. There was so much money given to the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. The Federal Reserve in particular is allowed to hand out just billions and billions of dollars with very few restrictions. And 
you know, small businesses, the Chinese food down the street from me, like that family owned business doesn't have a direct line to the Federal Reserve. So that's obviously money that's going to big business. And so they did have this smaller pot of money. This was limited. Um, the pay, what do they call it? The paycheck protection program. And that was supposed to be for small business, but they defined small business as a business with 500 employees or fewer per location. So that's how a business like Shake Shack, Fogo de Chao, um, Roots Chris. And we, we're picking on the restaurants here. At least those restaurants were actually hit by COVID-19. There was no requirement that these businesses prove that they've even had to stop working. So for instance, um, the sector that's gotten most of the Paycheck Protection Program money as of right now is construction. And I can tell you around here, Construction's still going on as usual. So they didn't put any requirements of the business to prove any harm. And the 500 employees per location thing is such an enormous, obvious loophole. And, and this is actually something I've been tracking for a long time. Small business used to be defined as 50 or fewer employees, which makes sense in my head. That sounds small to me. Um, and I watched over time, over the time I've done Congressional Dish, that definition to be changed to 500 or fewer employees. But this was the first time it was 500 or fewer per location. And so they they expanded that loophole on purpose. And now you see people like Chuck Schumer. He was one of the three people in the room. It was Chuck Schumer, Stephen Mnuchin, who, by the way, has been elected by no one to anything. But he was one of the three people that wrote the law. And uh, Mitch McConnell. Those are the three that wrote this damn thing. And Chuck Schumer's out there every day being like, these businesses shouldn't be taking this money and they should return it now and blah, blah, blah. He was tweeting that this morning. And it's like, bro, you made this possible. They're not doing anything wrong. You made it so that these companies are eligible for the money. You have the power to close that loophole and they're choosing not to. Tell me more about the 500 per location and why that matters. Like, Because I'm thinking, it, 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 what is it specific about the 500 or less per location that opened the loophole? So um, let's think of Fogo de Chao. I hate picking on Shake Shack and Roots Chris because they at least gave back the money, but Fogo de Chao didn't. So they're on my list right now. This is the Brazilian uh, meat kind of... Yes. Delicious food. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the place, but it's 50 bucks per plate. And that's if you don't have anything to drink, like they're doing fine. And this is also the type of restaurant that I've seen it in downtowns. I've been there in Chicago, uh, Los Angeles in the fancy area. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco. yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. Well, if you think about the individual stores, I mean, this is a a restaurant that's clearly doing good with the property they're able to get and the just the high class, like it's a, it's a bigger company, but because each store has fewer than 500 employees, that's what makes them eligible. So if they didn't put the per location thing, Foco de Chao has thousands of employees uh, that are scattered all right. over the country. Right. Yeah. But they were able to apply because each individual store has fewer than 500 employees. So it didn't matter that they have thousands. So of they could apply. So, so every store in the corporate chain could apply. So basically, yes, you can get your lawyers and you get your accountants and you can get a couple million dollars. Exactly. And that's and how nothing, and no laws are broken. have done it. No laws are broken doing that, doing that. No, this was perfectly legal. And so that's what I don't think people understand. They're getting mad at the companies. And Chuck Schumer himself is blaming the companies. It's like, no, this is something that Congress did. And Congress has the ability to close that loophole any minute now. But they're not choosing to do that. So... That's just and the this frustration. Is different, like, so tell me, like, so okay, so let's say 
you're like in a McDo- McDonald's, a lot of them are franchised, right? So like there's a private owner that owns, but some of these corporations are not franchised, right? Is that what you're saying? Like, so basically they have all these employees, but they're not, it's not as though the money is going to each individual franchise owner. It's going to corporate headquarters, right? Like it's going to the coffers of the FOGA to chat, whatever, like it's going to the corporate coffers. I'm not sure. That's the thing. Like we have, we have almost no oversight going on right now. So that's another part of the problems because the way that they structured this, it's not like the small business administration is actually administering the loans. They put the banks in the middle of it as a middleman. So it's the banks that determined who was at the front of the line. They were able to prioritize their, their biggest or most, you know, you pick, you do the, if you're a bank, you're going to prioritize your most important com- customers, which is probably not the owners of the Chinese food down the street. It's probably the big corporate clients that bring in the most money for the banks. And so they were first in line. That's another part of the problem that the banks got to make these decisions, not our government. So basically, we have the banks doing all the paperwork. The banks are the ones that are deciding you know, who gets their loans forgiven. It's really like our government has abdicated its responsibility to the banks. And as far as oversight is concerned, it's really hard to do oversight when your Congress is still on vacation. So as of right now, we're recording this on May 7th, the Senate has come back, but really just so that Mitch McConnell can get a bunch of right-wing judges approved. They're not doing very much oversight. And Nancy Pelosi has just kept the House on vacation, saying that it's too dangerous for them to come back to work, even though, meanwhile, the my friend at Trader Joe's has been working the entire time. So, um, so yeah, the House of Representatives, which is controlled by Democrats, which you would think would be doing the most oversight over the Republican administration is literally gone. So when it comes to these really good questions you're asking me, I have no way to find out. There are no hearings I can watch. There's no, there's no one there doing the the oversight that we need to answer those questions. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because there's this, so if you're the bank too, like there's this I've heard, you know, on several different podcasts and media outlets, they're talking like the banks are in this kind of bind where they're like, well, they're, the government's pushing, get the money out there, get the money out there. So, like, the banks don't want to look like the bad guy. We're being too cautious in the time when the country needs it. So, they shovel the money out there. And again, the, the, the corporate interest that can suck up the shoveled money. Like, I mean, this is, uh, this is just, it seems like a, a nightmare, uh, uh, which is, it, I mean, it's funny because you think about like how much we tend to demonize war profiteering, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it does seem that there is some pandemic profiteering going on. And, and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it seems like the market, it seems like the market is, is, bearing that out, right? I mean, because it's amazing that when you have record unemployment, depression level unemployment numbers, right? At the same time, the market's not doing terribly. And I mean, you you could you could really make more you you could really be doing okay if you're a creative investor right now, right? Um it's no, you don't even well, I mean I guess so, but really when you look at why the market is doing so much better while so many of us are getting thrown out of work, first of all, the market, they see us as as labor costs. So when a company is able to shed 15,000 employees, it's like, okay, well, you've just gotten rid of a bunch of labor costs, like good for you. So I mean, the the motivations are not always the same. But when you look inside the CARES Act, like for instance, they gave so much money to the Federal Reserve. We're talking like $454 billion split between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. And we're not really sure what the split is because they did not make that clear. So Steven Mnuchin has an enormous amount of power. He might be the most powerful person in the United States at this moment. And a, fun- a funky looking guy. I know. With a, with a really gorgeous wife. I mean, <laughs> and, and this is what, I mean. Well, with I, a, sh- 
a lot of money. Like, yeah, well, this, this is the thing. It meant, don't underestimate the 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 aphrodisiac power of money. Because I mean, that guy, he's kind of a funky looking guy. Yeah. Well, rich go- rich dudes get tail. They just do. So <laughs> I love that you said tail. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and, and a weird, interesting guy too, because he's one of these guys, right? That isn't like I mean, he was a Democrat. I think he's probably still a Democrat, right? He was a Democrat. No, in New York, I don't I think. think so. I thought. I don't was, know. I, I know he he's a, a member of the Trump administration. That's all that really matters to me at this point, that he was a Trump appointee. And that's why I think he, he's one of these kind of hired guns that like he has this New York kind of moderate sort of money Democrat background. And then just comes into the Trump administration because, you know, he's a New York guy. And, and now it's just has this kind well, of unprecedented this, amount of power. Like I mean, He pulled off this major coup because our Congress, like Nancy Pelosi just took off when the CARES Act was being created. So the Democrats really had no power. So the first version was created by Mitch McConnell. And then Chuck Schumer, who's the, the top Democrat in the Senate, they used Steven Mnuchin as their moderator, basically, to craft this $2 trillion, 880-page bill. And what you get is that something that Steven Mnuchin was basically in the room crafting gave him all this enormous enormous power. So it is amazing to me. I'm actually in awe of what Steven Mnuchin was able to pull off. I mean, if you, I, I read the CARES Act, there are so few strengths on what he's allowed to do with the money and what they did in the CARES Act. He gets to pick which businesses, almost entirely by himself, are going to get direct loans from the Treasury. But the Federal Reserve money is what I think we really need to pay attention to here because there were very few restrictions on that Federal Reserve money. And they are now allowed to use it to buy bonds that they were never allowed to buy before. Like They're literally using Federal Reserve money to buy junk bonds. So when you look at the market, something that's labeled as junk is being rewarded because the Federal Reserve is just going in there and propping up all these garbage banker bets. And so, yeah, of course, the stock market is doing great because the Federal Reserve is just wiping a lot of these slates clean. They're taking a lot of these problems that these companies had before and just giving them money and and almost completely in the dark. So the Federal Reserve has said they're going to give us some information, but it's not required by law. So we'll see what we actually get. Um, but and without Congress there again to do their oversight, we don't know where the money is going. So what I'm watching is as I watch the stock market continue to go up and the unemployment numbers also going up, it's like this makes sense to me because there is this enormous amount of secret money that's just being funneled at the big companies through the Fed in particular. Meanwhile, the Small Business Administration can it, people are having trouble even like applying, never mind getting the money. And even if they do, it's only supposed to cover payroll for six weeks or for eight weeks. And we've been here. I'm on week seven of quarantine. So I don't know about you, but it's like, so the even the businesses that were lucky enough to get it right from the beginning, they're screwed starting what next week. So um, that's what the discrepancy is. And you can blame a lot of it on the CARES Act because it was structured this way. I wonder, I mean, so the house like not being in session, right? I mean, oh, I'm so angry. So, so how, I mean, so I get it. It is a bigger body than the Senate. It's a, but like, couldn't you just do tests and like, I mean, is the problem testing? I mean, like, they don't I mean, need it, to do tests. They're selfish cowards. What they can do, because so. First of all, they all have offices and they all have TVs in the office. So I do my job watching Washington, D.C. from California. So what you could do is let's say you're having a hearing 
Until it's your turn to ask the questions, you can watch the hearing from your office and then walk into a pretty much empty hearing room, ask your questions, and return to your office. So that's how that can be conducted. They've already done a few hearings. That's exactly how they did it. They had like seven people that were members of Congress scattered all over the Congress part of the seating. They had the two witnesses sitting four chairs apart from each other and no one sitting in the public area. But we don't have to be physically in the room if we have C-SPAN. So the hearings, they can absolutely do social distancing, even if they don't have the tests, which by the way, they do. So that's one way to do it. Also, they had to vote on putting more money in the small business pot. So we've already seen them do socially distanced votes. Instead of doing 15 minutes, it took them an hour and a half. But what they did is they just called people based on their last name, and they were able to go into the room and vote and just kind of do it one by one. So we already know that they can do this safely. This is a choice that Nancy Pelosi is making because there were members of the House of Representatives that were like, oh, we're old and we don't want to come back. It really comes down to that. Also, I think she loves because this is too intentional at this point. I think she loves with the leadership being able to craft laws without the pain in the ass, you know, AOCs of the world getting in there and trying to change what she wants to do. So she gets an enormous amount of power when my representative is not allowed in the room. So, um, and I don't know when they're coming back. They, they said they're coming back next week, but like until who I, is actually, your, who is your, who is your rep by the way? You're in California, right? Barbara Lee. And I actually, okay. yeah. I like her a lot, Yeah, but um, she's not in the room. My mother's representative is Katie Porter. And so I am, beyond furious that Katie Porter isn't in any of these rooms because she's a, she's done financial oversight for that's like it's her career. And so she should be at the forefront of all this. She's not involved in any of it. Um, it's an absolute scandal that we are now on week seven of the House of Representatives being out of session. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right, too, because I mean, I feel like this is one of these things where um, for several years, and I think rightfully so, there's been a lot of concern on both sides of the aisle about um, normlessness and, you know, kind of the Trump administration going in this long arc. Every administration, right, takes executive overreach. And and, and Trump is kind of, has, has been part of Whole that. Whole new story. level. <laughs> right? I, I, I overreach. I'm the best overreacher. I'm a fantastic <laughs> overreacher. Tremendous. So this is the thing where like, this is the time, it's interesting that like, here's a time in a pandemic when you think, oh my gosh, we really have to watch this because this is where I've had a guest on um, a few times who's just back on Ed Watts, an ancient Roman historian, and he wrote this book called Mortal Republic. And he talks about how the Roman Republic fell into autocracy. He's just like, it's not laws, it's norms. It's these norms that get eroded. And democracies, democratic republics are held together by, he would argue, by norms, not more than laws. You know, the, the, you know, when, when you say, well, we just don't do this. So here you would think this is the time when, oh my gosh, we need to be vigilant on norms, right? Because it's a pandemic. And, and this is when things, you know, when there's, when there are crises, things tend to kind of get off the train. And really, it, it seems like this is the time when you'd want the Congress to be the most concerned about norms, right? I mean, why, why do you, th I mean, this is crazy, right? Yeah. And then what's, and so when you ask me, how am I doing on this? What's really making it hard for me is that I'm watching us fail on every level. We have no federal government response to COVID-19. We don't have a, a Congress that is doing any oversight of this chaotic response. If you can even call it a response. I mean, it's pretty much been like governors, you do you. Um, there's, I'm just watching us. And then like, when you talk about norms, and a lot of the, the governors are, are flouting the, the federal thing about the two week 
you know, you have to have this two week decline, right? Like, uh, well, the Trump administration uh, isn't even enforcing these guidelines. They were given guidelines by the CDC that Trump didn't like. And so he said, we're not using them. So when you have a federal government, that's not even saying like these guidelines are important when they're minimizing their own guidelines in order to get the economy restarted as fast as possible. um, There is no real federal guidance going on right now. And what's been really disturbing to me is in the beginning of this, I was watching the press conferences and fast forwarding through Trump to get to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and to to see the charts that they were giving and the numbers. And it was making me feel better. And as the time went on, Trump took over more and more of those minutes and has been silencing Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci to the point now that he's prohibiting Dr. Fauci from testifying to the House. So the people that I was trusting to give me information that weren't Trump, they're now being muzzled. Did so, you see Brad Pitt's Dr. Fauci on Saturday Night Live? I heard it. <laughs> it was, I was amazing. He's like, I don't he know. Really I, well. I don't know if I call the test beautiful unless you're thinking having something stuck, stuck 18 inches up your nose is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he nailed Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Um, there's so many things to be frustrated about right now. And when you talk about norms, the way that these bills have been passed is absolutely shameful. And so I over the course of my seven and a half years of following Congress to this somewhat psycho level that I have been, it just keeps getting worse to the point that the CARES Act, over $2 trillion of our money was appropriated and the House didn't even vote. So they just passed it by a voice vote, which basically means you just say, does everyone agree? And they say yes. And there's no recorded vote. It's more complicated than that, but not really. So we've just hit this new level of shameful to the point that they're literally not there that I'm having trouble knowing how to handle because at the same time, I'm not seeing the appropriate level of outrage from fellow Americans. Like there's just not a giant Twitter movement. There's no movement being like, Nancy Pelosi, get your ass back to work. Stop eating ice cream and come back to the House of Representatives. And just when I think of like, what if I was a member of the House of Representatives? If I were to serve my country, isn't that what you're there for? So yeah, you're afraid of COVID. Serve your country. There are people that go to war. Like you belong in Congress. We need lawmakers right now. So these cowards that have decided to just leave Congress empty. That part makes me so angry too. We're talking about healthcare workers being heroes and delivery drivers being heroes, which they are right now. And we have this Congress. It's like, no, I think I need to stay in my my mansion for, for my own safety instead of coming to work. It makes me so angry at the cowardice that I just, and I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to I mean, do because no do one's you, paying attention. Do you think that the rationale is something like, that are, are they trying to model it for other Americans? Like we're staying home, so you should stay home. I mean, what, I mean what, there's got to be a reason. I mean, I that I think they're cowards. You just think I it's think fear. they're cowards. Yeah, I think a lot of them are elderly. They know that they're in like the danger zone because that's what they've been. A, a lot of the quotes that I'm reading because I'm trying to ask, get these questions answered too. When you read the quotes, it's like it's too early for us to come back. We don't want everyone getting sick. Blah blah blah. It's all about they're worried about their individual health. And I'm sitting here being like, I get that, but you are elected to represent the people. Get your ass back to work. You are essential workers if anybody is. So I honestly think that it's cowardice. And I I think that they like shaming the Republicans for coming back to work. 
Um, so there's also this political battle too. Like a virtue signaling thing. Like, okay, you guys yeah. are... Yeah. yeah, like pretending like the Senate is being irresponsible by doing their job. But at the same time, the Republicans have gotten every single thing that they've wanted because they've been working while Nancy Pelosi's at home with her ice cream. Are, are you... So your podcast model has been, as I understand, right? You kind of go on on sponsors. Like people, people, you have kind of patrons, right? That like... 100% listeners... 100% listeners, you're not, you're not running ads, you're not doing this stuff. Has that suffered in COVID? I mean, have you have you taken a hit on We're sponsorship? Not sure yet. So my dad is my accountant because I'm the wordsmith. I don't do numbers. Um, so he just took my April financials today. So we know that Patreon has been okay. I think where I'm going to take a hit are the people that do one-time donations. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have noticed fewer of them, but I don't know like... Maybe there's until I see my thank yous because I have s- different episodes. I have my congressional dish episodes, and then I do thank yous where I read the notes and sa- thank every single person that that donates since the last episode. Um, until I get that list from my sister, <laughs> this is a family affair here. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah. it. I love it. I want to be in your family. This sounds fantastic. It's actually really fun. I love having them on board, and it's my sister's great too because she goes in my email and like if someone's really mean to me, she deletes it before I can see it. So um, she's helped me with like the mental health aspect of it too. But until I see those lists, I don't really know how bad I'm being hit. But the thing is like my husband works from home. I work from home. I'm not really worried if my finances take a hit because all things considered, like I'm fine. This is an interesting thing about the virus too, right? Because it it, it kind of exacerbates white collar, blue collar, income inequality stuff. Because if you're working from home you can kind of keep going. If you don't, you can't. And the other thing I think is interesting is like a lot of these states that mostly red states that want to open early, a lot of them don't have income tax, state income tax, right? So like if you're New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York and you have a state income tax, you're you're hurting, but at least people that are getting paychecks, you're getting money coming into the coffers. Like mm-hmm. whereas some of these states, right, that don't have a, a state income tax, I think some of the pressure to open back up, right, is that like, well, we don't have any money to move forward. Like, who cares about the federal guidelines? Like, we, which, which is just, I mean, I, I mean, th- 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 this is a situation, right, that seems to pose political and and policy conundrum on top of conundrums, right? It absolutely does. And another consequence of these states that are opening up early is, unless there is a statewide mandate to stay at home. That makes the workers who cho- who want to stay home for their own safety, who see what I see, which is that we're opening far earlier than other countries are in the stage that we're at. Because like basically, we've had our curve go up and we've plateaued, but we're still hanging out at the peak as a country. And so we have these states that are reopening and that knocks people off of the unemployment rolls. So you have these people that are like, I don't want to go back to work because I just don't think it's safe. But if I don't, then I officially lose my job and I can't get unemployment because you're supposed to go back as soon as it's safe. And so you have these states that are calling it safe, even though reality, probably not. And so that's going to screw over a lot of people who otherwise would be okay if they were in a different state that was taking this more seriously, like a California or a Washington um, and I feel really bad for the people that are there because if you're being told to go back to work or you're fired, what are you supposed to do? So yeah, this state by state approach—it's a big problem. And without Trump saying like, okay, like nationally, if you don't want to go back to work, unemployment's still available. You, we don't have a national policy, and without that, people are just at the whims of their 
their state governments. And some people are going to be super screwed. I feel bad for anyone living in Georgia. Yeah. And without like contract contact tracing and testing, which were uh, all the stuff is so like, I mean, we're so uh, behind on these curves, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, I, I have a friend who's an attorney in, in, in Alabama. He's in Birmingham. He's, he told me that like, Alabama's not too bad, but there is a, you know, a, a county that's, you know, a real hotspot. And so basically what happened is there's an old African-American gentleman who went to a black church convention in Detroit in like late February, came back and infected the whole county, right? Like, and and this is the kind of thing, right? Like, okay, well, we're not in a hotspot. We can open up. But then you have a truck driver that's in a hotspot. And if the stuff survives on a surface and touches the gas pump and then somebody touches it and doesn't wash their hands. I mean, these are the kind of things, right? Where like, I mean, I found, I, I read this article the other day. I was blown away. Like, I think two days ago, I saw this, like 323 workers in a meat processing plant in Missouri came back asymptomatic positive. Yeah. 323. This is unbelievable, right? I mean, I mean, and the problem is we don't even know what we're dealing with, right? And like, I mean, it just, it, it, you're kind of like your insight about like, we don't have a federal response. I mean, we, we need not just a federal response, we need federal, we need, we need a comprehensive picture of what we're dealing with. And we just have no idea. Yeah. And this is where this is where Congress is making me angry, because it's very clear that the Trump administration is chaotic and just operating on the whims of Donald Trump. But Congress right now could be having hearings with the CDC and demanding that Dr. Fauci show up and we they could be getting these answers for us. That's what they should be doing cuz I I'm feeling more and more anxious every day that I don't know who to turn to. I don't know where to look. So, um I've always depended very heavily on the hearings because most of the time these people are under oath, they have to tell the truth. They they're questions to government officials and we're not getting that right now. So Congress abdicating their responsibility, there should be a lot more focus on them and their failure. Um, even though Trump is obviously, I think it's very obvious that the Trump administration is failing at on a horrendous level um, at this, but Congress not being there to get the answers that we need is not helping the situation in any way. It's interesting. I like I listened to the New York Times Daily podcast with some regularity, and they did this whole thing about Joe Biden campaigning from his basement. It almost seems like this has been good for him in the sense of not being on the trail. There's fewer gaffes. He's kind of. I mean, it, 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 it's interesting. Like I, I for a guy that I think is a candidate that has a lot of liabilities, right? Pretty gaff prone. He's not aged as well as as some of the older older candidates. It's not ageism. I'm saying some people, you know, Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren don't look like they've lost much with age. Joe Biden. Biden looks like, has dementia. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's aged a little bit. Like you know, and but I mean, it's interesting. Like he, it seems like this has actually helped his prospects. Do do you think that's fair? Like the the the, the combination of Trump just kind of Trump fatigue. You know, I think Trump looks bad at those press conferences, and that's why I think his team pulled him off the off of these press conferences. And it, it, it's almost like something. This might have worked well for Biden. Honestly, I don't care. <laughs> okay. That's where I'm at with the 2020 election. I don't care at this point. We're in the midst of an emergency. The fact that those podcasts are even talking about Biden right now, he's completely irrelevant. Um, but don't you think it would change things? I mean, if you had, let's say we're still dealing with this in January, which we could still be dealing with this oh, pandemic. Oh, we will right? be. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think so too. I mean, I because again, you know, mumps was the fastest 
vaccine we ever came up with that was four years. I mean, I, it, it seems like we'll probably be doing this. Dr. Fauci you- said that it will be at least a year from when it started. So that's March. And he said anything, any vaccine that is offered to you in less than a year, he said this in the beginning when not a lot of people are paying attention, but he said anything in less than a year has been developed too quickly. And so I'll tell you that if they say in September, oh, we have this new vaccine, there is no way in hell I'm putting that in my arm. But and also that's assuming like that's assuming what we're saying then is that that we'll do it four times faster than we've ever done it. So like you know, I mean like, I mean this is, so don't you think that a Biden administration do, do you think they I mean do you think they would be more responsible? I mean yes. wouldn't that Yes. Yeah. Because he was a member of the Obama administration. And I watched them very closely. I started Congressional Edition 2012. So from 2012 to 2016, that was the administration that Congress is doing oversight on. And they always let the officials testify to Congress. Um, They definitely, there was information that got out that didn't make them look good. And they still released the papers. Um, There's just a different level of responsibility there. And yes, I absolutely, and actually like I... I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton. I actually couldn't vote for her. I didn't vote for Trump, but I didn't vote for Hillary either because her voting record is atrocious. But I do think that she would have done a much better job with this. Much better. Because with Trump, it's all about his ratings. So that's why he wants the economy to go back up because he wants he wants the ratings. He wants the stock market to be good. He He judges the economy based on how the stock market is doing. So it's all about him all the time. Those press conferences, those press conferences... There's nothing to me that shows the danger of Donald Trump more than those because he was silencing Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. And those are the people that needed to talk every day, not him. And so it all became about him every single day. Like, I think Joe Biden actually does give a damn about this country. I think that he would shut down. There would be a national plan. I am convinced of that. And he would do what needs to be done to save people. And the reason I think that is his son's dead. Like the fact that Bo died, even if he talks about Bo, he tears up again. So just the thought of other people's children dying, like I do think Joe Biden is a better human being than Trump is. And so, yes, I think that a Biden controversial statement. <laughs> is it? No, I'm just teasing. No. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I've also, I, yeah, I've also been struck by Andrew Cuomo, who I think has kind of shot. I mean, he's at one of these governors that has his briefings. I mean, he just gets the data out there. I mean, he kind of like, I mean, this is kind of what you want, right? You want some yeah. calm that puts data out there and, and kind of attempts to sort of get information out there. Because I think that like that's, I, I think that in a, in a time of crisis like this, right? Like you want people to feel like soldiers, not victims, right? You want people yeah. to feel like they're, and I think information empowers, right? Yes. Like, and, and, and and I think that, yes. that 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 kind of thing, where, where when Cuomo just gets out there and puts the data up and talks through the charts and talks through, the, I, I feel like that gives people a sense. Okay, we're in this yeah. together. We know we know what. The, and, and I feel like kind of the the Trump take makes the sort of chicanery and the smoke and mirrors and the lack of information makes that's what makes people right leap to conclusions and feel victimized. And I mean, that's like information. It, 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 it's an old truism, but right. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That's kind of yeah. the whole principle of your podcast. Oh, it absolutely is. And that's, what's been so frustrating to me is I know that there's information. If Trump thinks it doesn't make him look good, we're not allowed to get it right now. And I do not think the, the Obama administration and therefore the Biden administration would do that. I mean, if you look at during Ebola, Obama wasn't out there every day doing the press conferences. CDC officials were. 
And he wasn't trying to muzzle them in any way. They were fully available to Congress. If anything, it was encouraged. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed with what we're not being told and the fact that the officials in order to keep their jobs have to kind of couch what they say so as not to piss him off. Um, that's extremely dangerous. Like, especially right now where the states are reopening, I would really like for Dr. Fauci to be back on the stage today saying, this is what the facts are. This is what I recommend and not be afraid of pissing off Trump. But that is not the case. And um, so, yeah, I feel like we're just missing information. So even for myself, I'm one of the extremely privileged people where both my husband and I work from home. We can hunker down for as long as we need to. And we don't know if we need to. So our plan is to basically hunker down for the rest of the year at this point, because I don't know what's safe and what isn't. And and no one does. No one does. I mean, yeah. this is where, I mean, we, we, I mean, the World Health Organization has said this, right? That we, we really don't know if you get it and you recover, if you're immune or not. I mean, we, 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 mm-hmm. we, 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 we don't know any of that. And, and the, the, I mean, we are working without a net here and this is. And we're not you know. operating on better safe than sorry mentality. If we were, I'd be feeling a lot better when they tell me now, like, oh, yeah, you can go out and go to the store now. I would feel better about those directions if I thought that they were being made with health and safety in mind. But I don't. I think that this is an economic decision. It's economics above people. And I know it is on the federal level. Um, I'm in the state of California. I do trust Gavin Newsom, our governor, more than the federal response. But like you said, all it takes is one idiot from Georgia to get on a plane. And here we go. My whole community is screwed. And so in the United States, now do we put up state borders? Is this what we need to do to protect the states like mine that are we're still on lockdown here until the um, till May 31st in the Bay Area? So are we supposed to just tell the rest of the states, sorry, like if you haven't been locked down, you're not allowed in? How do we even enforce something like that? So I just feel like I'm going to be stuck on lockdown forever. At this point, because like, well, no, I mean, I, that's what the governor of Jersey just said, right? Like that, basically, we're on lockdown indefinitely. I mean, like you know, the and that's realistic. I mean, it, it's probably not going to be forever, but it's it's it is realistic to say, like, look, we don't know what we're doing. I'm wondering, do you think like uh, one of the things I think is is so intriguing is like with the 2020 election, even though you said you know I don't you don't care about, it, but I'm just going to ask you. Anyway. Oh, I care deeply about the congressional election. congressional right Trump Trump versus Biden. I know who I'm voting for. I'm done right. But this is but this is what's interesting, right? Because I think before Corona, I think it would have been realistic to say that you look at Democrats maybe have a chance to take the Senate and keep the House majority. Because it's what I always look at is like retirements, right? So you have all these Republicans, yeah, that are quitting, right? They, they, I'm not running for re-election because it's so fun to be in the minority, and you know, you're kind of like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm a backbencher, and I'm kind of just sitting here. So I always look at that. Okay, so now though. With Corona and the possibility of a, a total, I mean, I mean, I, we had a snapshot in 2018, right? Of like the biggest ter- midterm turnout, like in in decades and decades and decades. So you you would think, okay, wow, this does not bode well for Trump or the Republicans congressionally. But now it seems that like who knows, right? I mean, because I don't. Do you have any thoughts on turnout models? I and mean, what are we going? Are we going to do mail and voting? I mean, like how? This could be really weird. I don't do the crystal ball thing. The only thing that I know is that in 2018, when we showed up for the midterms, that record turnout had a lot to do, especially with the people I know that voted for the first time of putting some accountability on the Trump administration. So it was like the Republicans were in charge of everything for those two first two years. That was crazy. So the opposition party won the House of Representatives. 
What I'm witnessing now is that that House of Representatives that we gave to the Democrats, they've abdicated their responsibility. So when you look at the fact that the Senate is back and the Senate wrote the CARES Act for better or worse, the Senate, the Republicans got everything they wanted in all three bills because they basically wrote all three bills with the Democrats able to do some tweaks via one guy, Chuck Schumer. Um, when you look at which party is actually effectively governing, unfortunately, because I don't like what the Republicans are doing. That's why I say unfortunately, but the Republicans are working. So I think that if the American public actually looks at what happens when you give the Democrats power, they seem to like to sit back and watch the Republicans fail and then be like, look, we're better than them instead of actually stepping up and leading. And this could backfire on them because I am so angry at the Democrats because I voted for them to do the oversight and they're just not. And it's it's one thing for the House to be in session and there's like five people, you know, me and two reporters watching what's going on. When they're on vacation for all of COVID, any old person can see that they're not doing their job. So the longer this continues with the Democrats, I actually think their congressional chances could be in a lot of danger because I'm not the only one that's angry with them. So um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. I don't know if we're going to be able in California. We're fine because we already have vote by mail. But what happens in the red states where they don't want people to vote? I don't know. We definitely needed something in one of these bills that already passed to guarantee national vote by mail. The Democrats did not fight for that because they were not there. Um, So unless the Democrats step up and actually do some legislating, I do not know how the 2020 election even gets administered properly or fairly. So my level of concern for what happens in that election, off the charts, off the charts. Yeah. And this is a challenge, right? With the, the federalism, like, it, it, you know, it, with everything, like often our all of us, our virtues, sometimes our vices and vice versa. Like, the, I mean, there's something great about like the federalist system in that, in that we're a big liberal democracy. And I can't think of a country that's as big and diverse as we are that has a robust liberal democratic polity, right? I mean, most of them are autocratic. But at the same time, the limits are here, right? Like we don't have national solutions to some of these problems that are really national problems. And 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 this is part of the challenge of our of, of our founding. Again, like you know, it, 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 we're I mean, again, we have a unique and interesting constitutional system, but this is it, it, it drives me nuts too when I watch presidential debates and people are saying, "Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this." As if they're going to be a king or a queen. Yeah. No, it, well, I'm guessing that, like, in the Democrats, I'm thinking, I'm guessing there's going to be at least 41 Republican senators in their filibuster. You're not going to get any of this done, right? Like, I mean, I, I feel like we just people, we, we, our political discourse just doesn't often reflect the unique challenges uh, the, the, of the system we have, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a big reason for that is that very few of us are paying attention to our branch. Very few of us are paying attention to what goes on in Congress. Very few of us communicate with our congressmen. So they're able to just establish these new norms. None of us are even aware of it. Um, Until we get uncomfortable enough to be like, "Uh uh-oh, like we need some control over our lawmakers, I don't think it's going to change. Is COVID enough? That's where my hope lies. Maybe COVID is enough to make people start paying attention to Congress, which also we the fact that we already know that Biden is the Democratic nominee. It's like, OK, Trump, Biden, who are you voting for? OK, now, you know, 
move on. So if you really want to have interesting conversations between now and the election, it should be about Congress. So I do have some hope that this Congress is bad enough on both sides that we'll start paying attention and vote better people in. And it started happening in 2018. We have some phenomenal people in the House of Representatives. Katie Porter is so good. I love her so much. Katie Porter single-handedly got us free COVID-19 testing. I watched her do it. Um, I played it in the show. But she did such a good job of forcing the CDC director in a hearing to say, yes, I will guarantee free testing. That is the power that these individual members of Congress have, and she used it and did it effectively. So if we can get more Katie Porters into Congress, we can actually have good things happen in this country, but we have to take responsibility for our Congress. And so far, man, um, the leadership cannot remain Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. That's essential. They both have to go. Um, and we have a lot of work me, to do. What strikes me as so interesting politically is that if you look at 2018, the people that won the House for the Democrats were pretty moderate Democrats. A lot of there were a lot of women mm-hmm. with national security backgrounds and military backgrounds. So, it, it, and then you looked at the presidential field, and I'm thinking, how is it that the presidential field looks so unlike this congressional field that swept the day? That won. That won. You know, you think of Northern Virginia these gerrymandered districts that were supposed to just always be Republican. And you had this one woman, I think is a CIA caseworker or something like she, you know, you know there's a woman from um, uh, Michigan who another CIA kind of defense person, like these moderate Democrats who had this interesting national service background. Like wh- why, why is it that the presidential field looked so different than the, than the house field that won. I mean, these people well, won gerrymandered districts. Like, it could, that's because of the way that the Democrats run their primaries. You have to remember, the Democrats are a private club. So we don't get any say on how they write their rules. So they chose to allow Iowa and New Hampshire and like the whitest, smallest states in the union weed out the first candidates. How would that have changed had every single one of us gotten to vote in the primary on the same day? Like New York hasn't even voted yet. You know, there's half, I think there's something like a third of the states haven't even voted in the primary yet and it's already over. So as long as that remains the case where all of the country doesn't get a say in the primary, like I don't even understand why they cover the primaries if this is going to be the case. It's if, if it's all over and people are dropping out after Iowa, what's the point? And, so, and you and, think, and you think of like Iowa, just I, I think Iowa is an interesting. Uh, case in point, right? Because like you, I remember watching the West Wing, and they were talking about Iowa, and they're like, "You have to take the ethanol pledge." You say, "I shower in every morning," because like we would not like if every senator didn't think, "Well, maybe I'll run for president someday," and I can't be against ethanol. Like ethanol is the worst, right? I mean, it costs. It's like corn additive in our gasoline. Like and it, it's just a terrible policy, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, it does not help the environment. But there's a lot of corn farming in Iowa. So like you so so if you want to run for president someday or if your friend wants to run for president, your buddy, you know, you kind of have to have these commitments to policy positions that are again, if we if we even if we just had right like regional primaries, like we had four primary votes. And so like the Northeast voted one thing, the Southeast, you know, like four or five, you know, like even if we just had not on the same day, but just regional ones, right? Where where you had a bigger sampling of the electorate. And you didn't have these pet issues like in places like Iowa and New Hampshire or Nevada. Like, I mean, you, you know, you, you, I mean, it's, I mean, this is the problem. The other thing too, I think, wouldn't you be pissed off if you were in a caucus state where like, let's say, you know, 
you have to sit there for hours and you have a young kid and the child care issues and who goes and coxes me or my, or my spouse. Like, I mean, these, these, these things are so anti-democratic, right? Yeah. And these are democratic party choices that are made. So I think one of the big problems with our system is that we've convinced ourselves that our only choices are Democrats and Republicans. And that is one of the biggest problems that we have because these two parties are toxic to their cores. And that's so when you ask what happened with the primary, that's it. The Democratic Party got to decide. And so what happens is, you know, Iowa didn't pick Kamala Harris. Iowa didn't pick Tulsi Gabbard. Like the Democratic Party decided who got to debate. So as long as they control the rules for who we whittle down to the top two, we're going to get two candidates that agree on a lot of the worst stuff. Like with Trump and Biden, they're both warmongers. They're both friendly to the banks. They both don't want Medicare for all. I mean, there's a lot of overlap there. And we basically have to choose the lesser of two evils once again. And anyone who wants to jump into the race, I know a lot of people want Jesse Ventura in it. Justin Amash is thinking about running as a libertarian. But they're all going to be called spoilers um, as long as if, we I hope Jesse Ventura runs because I just want to be like, I want to do my- I know. I like, love it. The governor. Here it is. I mean, I, 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 like, <laughs> I, like they have a, a Jesse Ventura- in person at Howard Stern, he's like, well, we're going to um, have a new um, Howard. We're going to have this new branch in the military, just the truth seekers. And what's that going to look like, Governor? Well, they're just going to run around and seek the truth in uniform. And we're going to, you know, they're going to categorize all the, <laughs> like, this guy's, he's like, do you think 9-11 was an inside job or not, Governor? He's like, well, I think it's not mutually exclusive. I mean, one of the buildings could have been an inside job and one wasn't. <laughs> I love Jesse Ventura. He's a really bright guy, though, and very interesting. And I mean, oh, yeah. he's and, you know, it's interesting because what he did right in the Minnesota state house is he's like he didn't get any lobbying money. Right. And so, like, he didn't let any lobbyists in. <laughs> like, he was yeah. like, well, well, they didn't get it. They didn't help us get in here. Why should we let him in the state house? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no, he definitely cares about the people. And. I would love to see more than two names on our presidential ballot. But at the same time, I know that my power doesn't rest in the presidential side. We put so much time and energy about talking about the presidency when our power is in Congress. Right. Because because Congress could run the country. Right? I mean, if they two should thirds be. Majority, the two thirds majority, if you could get two thirds, you could override vetoes. Like So Congress mm-hmm. basically could run the country if it wanted to. Um, well, Congress controls the money. Congress is supposed to control the wars. But they've just over the years abdicated so much of their power to the executive branch. I mean, even the way they craft laws, they'll be like, you know, we want to they'll, they'll craft a law, but then they'll leave all the details up to the secretary of whatever. So they'll they'll set the broad rules, but all the details like this is one of the major flaws with Obamacare. That's why, like, we had a bunch of rules when Obama was president and then Trump came in and changed a bunch of them because they left so many of the decisions up to the health and human services secretary. And so like during the Obama years, catastrophic plans weren't allowed, which are basically plans that they don't charge you much in premiums, but if you get sick, they pay for nothing. Those were essentially illegal. Now they're legal because we have a new administration. That's not how it's supposed to work. Congress has the power to work out the details and make real laws. But we've just, like you said, with norms, we have these new norms where they think it's okay to just make the executive branch do everything. And then when you end up with a Trump administration that doesn't believe in government, (laughs) so they don't do it well. Um, And actually, 
Trump, one of the things he bra- brags about all the time is how he rips up regulations. He's like, no one's destroyed as many regulations as me. And it's true. I mean, they've just thrown the rule books out the window. So like right now, the EPA is not enforcing laws on the fossil fuel industry. Like they're just not doing it. And because Congress is there, no one's doing anything about it. So it's like there need to be actual laws in the books that are enforceable and not just left up to the executive branch. And so that's one of the other reasons we have to get our Congress under control. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Was it Michael Bennett, the senator for, from Colorado? Colorado. Had, yeah, who had a kind of failed presidential bid. But he said, you know, I've been <laughs> he in... He like pre-Iowa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he failed pretty big. Uh, bigly, he failed bigly. Um, but he said, you know, he'd been in Senate for two terms. And in his two terms, they had never passed a budget. And so basically, uh, people, or don't they just do continuing resolutions? Like, they don't pass real budgets. They just do like, okay, we'll just increase the budget from X year year ago and we'll like and just for spending norms but they're, they're not like oftentimes congress doesn't even pass the budget right they just pass continuing resolutions no they usually do i don't know what he's talking about with that but there's also there's different parts of the process so there's the budget and then there's the appropriations so the budget is like the outline that the right. appropriators who actually give out the money are supposed to use What's happened is that the president submits his budget with this particular president. It's just not even paid attention to. Well, the, what makes me nuts is the media loves to cover the Trump budget as if it's a real thing. It's just a suggestion. And then when the right. actual money is appropriated, they don't say a damn word about it. But there's different steps. So I do think maybe it's possible they didn't do the budgetary part where they take the president's budget and then match it up and like give that to the appropriators. That doesn't seem to be as important as it used to be. Um, at least as far as Congress is concerned. But they're every, I mean, they have to do the appropriations. They'll do continuing resolutions to a certain extent. But um, there's only been, I mean, I've been doing this seven and a half years. I think there was only one, maybe two years where the whole year was a continuing resolution. Usually, okay, I didn't know that. Appropriations do happen eventually. The problem is that they do them like five seconds before Christmas, and they'll be like a thousand pages long, available for 20 minutes. And then they attach all kinds of stuff to it because no one has time to read it. Read it, and the, if it doesn't get signed into law, it's a government shutdown. So it's must sign legislation, which means all kinds of garbage gets signed into law. So that's why I read those every year because it's an emergency situation when it's almost a shutdown, and it's been stunning some of the things that they made law that we would never allow on their own. But that's it's a strategy now, is how the. The budget process is used. It's a strategy used to get garbage into law. It's interesting. I, I so I've known you for a few years now, um, and I, uh, I've always enjoyed talking with you. I mean, I, I, every conversation I have with you is so enlightening and, and energizing. And one of the things I remember in our first conversation, I was struck by is you came into this political thing very non ideological. You were just kind of a factory, and it, you had you were torn apart by the war in Iraq and, and real personal losses in that. And yet, you you seem to be now more left of center, but but you but it's funny because you don't talk like a lefty. You just it just the issues. It, I mean, you, the way I hear you talk about issues, you tend to be left of center in most of the practical issues. But you're it's it's interesting because you, you people that try to fit me in a box of right or left have a really tough time. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. No, this is. I mean, I'm intuiting this, and this is the thing because I think like even though your policy positions more often than not tend to be left of center. 
it seems like it's just empirical. You don't talk like a lefty or you don't sound like a lefty. You kind of, it just seems like when I hear you talk about it. <laughs> I didn't issues, introduce myself with my pronouns. <laughs> exactly. You didn't introduce any pronouns, and, 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 which is fantastic. Uh, uh, no, no, but it's interesting. Is that journey like it, it's interesting that that journey interests me because you, you it, it again it strikes me that you you've kind of like come to a constellation of policy positions without being an ideologue, which is because that there's just not many people like that. Well, I mean, when you watch, so like right now, I'm doing a an episode on facial recognition software. And so I'm watching, I think I'm on my eighth hearing about it um, over the course of the last two years. And when you actually watch these issues and you watch the debate for that long and really understand an issue, it doesn't fall into left, right anymore. It, like you're able to look at the nuance and see like what makes sense, what doesn't. You can also see that the party lines a lot of times dissolve in the hearings um, they're really only present in cable news, which I don't watch. So it's really easy for me to go issue by issue. And because I have no loyalty to any party, because I'm not funded by advertisers, because I refuse to be a part of any network, um, it's really easy for me to go issue by issue. And now it's actually been detrimental to my show. I can tell you that for sure. Because, you know, back when Trump was first elected, I was pretty upset about it. So a lot of people that liked Trump abandoned the show. But then with the whole impeachment debacle that we just went through, I watched every single hearing on the impeachment. And my conclusion after watching it and presenting two hours of the clips and like really lining them up to show all of the details. After I lined them all up, I said, the Democrats don't have enough here to convince me that he absolutely did what they said he did. And there go all the Democrats. Now, all of a sudden, I'm a Trump lover. So it's like, it's hard to not be on a team sometimes. That strikes me as a very responsible position because I thought that like about, you know, I mean, I thought the Mueller report was really instructive. And I think Mueller was seemed like a straight shooter. And he's like, look, the Russians wanted to help Trump and Trump wanted all the help from the Russians. But we can't really prove criminal conspiracy here. They're kind of winking at each other and they're kind of and it looks like there was Roger Stone and some other connections. But like there's not enough to prove. Now, there was a lot of obstruction of justice. Yes. You know, but. But I think you're right. And that's, I mean, I think that's a, a courageous stand to be able to say, look, um, hey, I, I don't like this administration, but I think the Democrat, like, the, there's not enough here. I mean, I think that's a hard stand to take, right? It was. And I suffered financially for it. I took a lot of heat in my inbox <laughs> for it. Um, the partisans just don't know what to do with me. And so eventually they just leave. But yeah, my income took a huge hit from that. So preaching to the choir is what pays. I think that's why you see Fox do what they do and why MSNBC does what they do. Like, I don't feed people what they want to hear. I feed people what they need to hear. Um, yeah. So it's been it's been encouraging and disappointing at the same time to watch my numbers take a hit. But at the same time, the community that I do have, I'm so in love with. They're the most mature people and with the listener supported model, I have a good back and forth with them. So like reading their emails on the thank you episodes, like they give me faith in America like all the time. Because a lot of times it's easy to look at our country and be like, wow, we're the dumbest and we're screwed. But then I'm reminded all the time that like, no, there's actually really smart people that can see the nuance and aren't on teams and they do exist. And this is an option. So it's it's been it's been an interesting journey for me to deal with the heartbreak and all of the love that comes 
with behaving the way that I do as a podcast host. Yeah. And I, I find that, that that's, I mean, that's interesting because I think you do have this connection to your audience. And I think, and, and for people that don't know your show, and I'll put you, the links in the show notes. And I mean, it, it is a great example of um, just great. I mean, you're a great broadcaster. You have a great personality, but also you do pretty good production. Like I, like my show, this show is not like super high produced, right? So I don't really edit anything and kind of, but you, you play congressional clips. You, mm-hmm. you, you, you bleep yourself, which I love when you're like, <laughs> Like when you're dropping f bombs, I mean, you do have a really nice. I mean, it is. I like listening to it because it it really is easy on the ears, right? I mean, it, it it's oh, a fun, you. it's a fun, informative show. I mean, which is really. Do, so here's my question: Do you like, have a do, dose of me being an idiot sometimes? <laughs> you, like when I got to say the name Donna Shalala in the uh, CARES Act, like I was so excited because it's the best name in the world. So Donna Shalala, yeah, Donna Shalala. <laughs> so do you? Oh, yeah. I mean. Do Washington journalists reach out to you? Like, do you? I mean, because well, I was I mean, on C-SPAN last summer. Yeah. Do they? I mean, do they like call? I mean, because I would guess if you're a DC journalist covering Congress, like, there's nothing like, there's not a deep dive that I know of anything like your show. I mean, like yeah. the, the kind of stuff you do. I mean, when you put an episode out, it's really and it's easy to listen to. I mean, it's the kind of thing you can. So, do you wind up developing relationships with congressional beat kind of journalists? Um, so the world according to Jesse, which is Jesse Ventura's RT show. Um, I've been on that probably like 10 times now. Um, and so the journalists that are in his world, I've developed some rapport with them. Um, I also know that some journalists follow me. But I want to do a whole show with you where I, I just imitate Jesse Ventura. Like, hi, Jen Briney. How are you? It's great to see you. Let's talk about the Congress. Like, I, I just like, I love Jesse Ventura. Yeah. And he's actually, he's great. I love the questions that he asks me. Um, they're so intelligent. He loves to get into the nuance. So, I mean, if he, if he ran for president, I would vote for him in a heartbeat because I at least know he's a good person. I know he cares about people. I know he's aware that the corporations have far too much influence in our politics. So I really like him. Um, but I think that if the and DC journalists are listening, they're keeping it from me. Okay. Okay. So you, so they're not, so you don't have like, you don't recognize the sort of um, DC elite reporters like, oh yeah, I talked to them. They, they kind of, they're not. No, I'm more like guerrilla journalism. So, um, like Matt Taibbi follows me and that makes me so excited. Great. Uh, Wow. Great. He's a great guy. I mean, I adore him and I hope I get to meet him someday. I don't know how I ended up on his radar, but I think it's really cool that I am. Um, the, the one show that I would like to do more than anything is Joe Rogan. I think that would be so fun. And so that's the thing. I'm not trying to get into like the DC elite circles because I think their circle is a problem. Um, this bubble mentality that they have. So I, I like being just an outsider person. Like I like that I do my show from my living room and then I just live because I want to do it from the perspective of a taxpayer, not from the perspective that's on the inside. There's enough of that. And, um, and I've known people that have moved to DC and they say like, you just get sucked into it so easily. So I just, I stay away for the most part. Although if C-SPAN calls me, I'll go back in a second because I love C-SPAN. But I mean, um, it's, it's interesting you say I don't want to be a part of it. There's a, a friend of the show, been a guest, Tom Nichols, who wrote this great book called The Death of Expertise. And and he's he does Morning Joe and Bill Maher and stuff. But he says, like, really, most Americans could be more aware just 
by thinking and getting a newspaper subscription and reading deeply. Like, and I mean, this is you kind of citizen journalist. I mean, this is, you're the Tom Nichols dream that you're kind of somebody that didn't, you didn't study this. You, you didn't go to journalism school where they did, okay, I'm going to pay my beltway dues and do all this, right? I mean, you kind of just out of passion and concern became a student of the system. And now you're again, like, and I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent guy and, and you're one of the most informed, if, if not, the most informed person on the political process I know. So this is the kind of thing where a model of like the, the American citizen dream that the founders had, right? That, that people just could, with a little bit of education and a commitment to civic responsibility can really understand what's going on, right? Yeah. And all the resources that I need are online. I never could have done this 20 years ago unless I moved to DC and got a job at a radio station, in which case someone would have muzzled me a hundred times by now. Um, but the fact this that- is like, this is what Dan Carlin says, right? Like he never could find a voice in radio because talk radio was always kind of more partisan or more mm-hmm. produced than he wanted to do. And then the internet comes and now Dan Carlin's, you know, as podcasters, he's our hero. Yeah. And I can do whatever I want. The congressional record, I have access to that online. The videos for the hearings. In fact, I'm getting rid of my cable um, in, in about a month because- I don't really need C-SPAN Live. I have direct access to hearings through YouTube now. Um, We have everything we need to do good investigations on what's going on in our Congress. And what makes me so sad is that there are so many journalists that have corporate resources, millions of dollars in staff and could do so much good work with the resources that I have. And they're just choosing not to use them. It's so much easier to talk about Biden um, and follow the the five people that are running for president. It's just lazy is the way I see it because everything that you need to do my job is there. People just aren't doing it. So you're stuck with me because I'm really not all that intelligent. Um, I'm just doing the work. I'm just doing the studying. But there's definitely people that would be better suited for this with better resources. They're just choosing to do easier topics. It I makes think me sad. Com- I think you're completely underselling yourself, by the way, because I think you're mm. pretty bright. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Because if you talk to me about other topics that I haven't been studying for seven and a half years, like, I don't know what I don't know. It's just this is something that I've been obsessed with for a long time. And so I just have this memory of what's gone on. But if I didn't study this, it's this is just what I decided to become an expert in. Why don't you run for office? So many reasons. Well, first of all, I got really pissed off at what just happened. But I live in California. And we have something called the top two primary system where basically... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, If you don't win, essentially, you have to be one of the top two people in the primary to get on the ballot. And so the result of that has been we used to have like usually like 30%. It was pretty high, like between 20 and 30% of the people on the ballot for the House of Representatives in California would be either independents, libertarians, greens, or like whatever party they made up. Um, ever since the top two primary system became a thing, it's been 96% Democrats and Republicans every single time. So what they like about the system is that it's possible now in a district to have two Democrats running or two Republicans running in it. But independents have been completely shut out. And it's I think it's a scandal. And so that's the system they have here and in Washington. So that's a problem. And then... Um, that's the main problem, honestly. And then also, like, I'm busy <laughs> producing the show. Um, isn't it the worst thing, if you, especially if you're in the house, right? Like, 
and running every two years, you're just dialing for dollars every day. And I refuse right? like, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, at least if you're in the Senate, you have some time in between elections a little bit. Like, but if you're, I mean, that's what I've heard from both parties. Like, I've heard a lot of interviews with, this is the most depressing thing about being a congressperson that you're in the house. Basically, all you're doing is raising money all the time. And like, yeah. it's so, it's funny because uh, Dan Carlin said this, like, you know, my aunt, her, his great aunt or his grandmother or something like who was great at raising money for the Rotarians and the bake sale and this, he's like, she was great at it. He's like, but that doesn't make me think she'd be great at declaring war or making fiscal policy decisions. I know. But that he says, that's the first thing when you're running for local office, what's your fundraising capacity? So the first thing they ask is that. And so like, basically you're in a kind of permanent fundraising position. Mm-hmm. Or, and that's I mean, not that just, my jam. I, yeah. I, I mean, even asking for money on my show is incredibly uncomfortable for me. I don't publicize my show. So, I mean, I'll go on other people's shows, but I spend zero time telling people about it on social media. Everyone and their mom has told me that's a bad decision. But like, I don't, I'm just not someone that is comfortable with or enjoys self-promotion. And I don't like asking other people for money. So the current way of how we elect people just doesn't match my personality. That said, I'd be willing to put my name on the ballot and volunteer if I was in a community that wanted to kind of do that legwork and get me there. So if like there was a community that decided like, Hey, we want you to represent us. Like I would move to that district. I'm not opposed to it, but I'm not going to go out and be like starting bake sales for myself. Like I actually think I'm doing more good by doing the show than running at this point. Um, But I mean, if someone did make it into Congress and wanted me to be in their staff, maybe as like a communications director, I would jump at the chance. Like I'm not, opposed to it, but it would have to be in a capacity of kind of doing what I do from the inside. I don't know. But yeah, running around, it just doesn't make any sense with the way that I live. Well, I would, I'll, I'm going to pray for that, that uh, that that happens. Because I think if DC would be a better place if you were in it. Jen, thanks. Uh, I love when you, I'm, I'm going to have you on more often. I love when you do the show. I could talk with you forever. <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking for 70 minutes and I'm just thinking I, I could talk to you for 70 more, but We'll have to do a part two at some point. Um, well, and my dog needs a, she needs a walk. So. Yeah, so this <laughs> is fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.